This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we hear from Joseph Lockard. Lockard was a radar operator in Hawaii during the attack on Pearl Harbor. He spotted the incoming Japanese forces an hour before their surprise attack, but his warnings were dismissed. A friend and I uh, enlisted uh, in the Army in August of 1940. That time, you had to be sworn in in Harrisburg. So we rode a train to Harrisburg, were sworn in, and were transported with a group then from there down to Fort Slocum. That was the port of uh, deportation at that time uh, for overseas and uh, spent uh, too much time between there and Fort Wadsworth. In November, we uh, sailed for Hawaii uh, from New York through the Panama Canal. I was 19 at the time. Uh, We arrived in uh, on Oahu in December of uh, forty. We were formed as a company. It was called uh, Signal Company Aircraft Warning Hawaii. Hawaii was a territory at that time, of course. Uh, and uh, while we were formed as a, an aircraft warning company, we didn't have any actual radar equipment to work with until August of 1940. At that time, we uh, had received uh, six uh, mobile units, uh, mobile 270B units. These were uh, located uh, at various points around the island. Uh, there was one on Cocoa Head, where I spent some time. There was one at Kaaaba. There was one at, uh, I believe, Wailua. And there was one at Fort Shafter. I don't know how many of that amounts to, but... <laughs> That's the ones I, I remember offhand. The one at Opana was not put there until November of 1941. That was uh, one that had been moved from uh, Schofield. We received these units and, of course, uh, instructional manuals <laughs> with instruction manuals. And we spent time uh, at Schofield on one unit, which uh, was set up for everybody to learn about because 
none of the people in the company had actually seen one of these units until that time. Then uh, most of the training was actually done on the job at the different locations around the uh, island. Uh, there were regular programs of uh, training exercises run on uh, these machines. As I said, I spent uh, some time at Cocoa Head first uh, before I was moved to Opana. Opana wasn't there at that time. The unit wasn't at Opana at that time. We were a rather small company, and of course, I think uh, initially there were 202 officers and men. There's a lot of support people. Uh, I was one of the technical people. And uh, there were a crew of uh, six, maybe uh, six or seven, at each of these locations. Uh, why I was selected, I was, I was uh, selected for, I guess, because of my technical competence. I don't know. <laughs> I like to think so. <laughs> the 270B was a mobile radar unit. Uh, it was mounted on wheels. Uh, there were... Uh, an operating van, a power van, an antenna trailer, a motive power unit for that trailer, and a stake body truck which carried the antenna bays. All of this was um, demountable and uh, capable of being transported to any location where there was a road or a reasonable facsimile of a road. Uh, the antenna was a mast on a trailer, which could be cranked erect after it was uh, mounted with the nine bays that were uh, bolted to it. Uh, these were connected by a series of uh, quarter-inch copper tubing that formed the transmission line. This then set in an upright position. At the base uh, had an azimuth ring and uh, the whole antenna was driven by uh, a couple of motors so that it could be operated from the uh, operating van in uh, rotation. Uh, there was a transmission line of two quarter-inch uh, copper tubing uh, lines that ran from a coupling underneath the antenna, which was simply two coils of tubing that faced each other. Uh, they ran to the operating van and to the transmitter in the operating van, which meant that the operating van and the antenna had to be within uh, uh, 20 feet of each other, roughly. In the operating van, there was an oscilloscope uh, with a five-inch tube, a receiver, and a transmitter, and a unit called a keyer, uh, a water cooling mechanism for the magnetrons, which were in the transmitter, and a desk for a plotter, and uh, that sort of thing. These trucks were designed so that the, all the sides could be opened. The uh, sides were supported by chains, and uh, the uh, top section was supported by uh, braces so that you could open them up. In the uh, power van was located a diesel electric generator and a rectifier. And then, of course, there were power cables that ran from the rectifier to the operating van. So that they all had to be in close proximity to each other. Today's radars, comparison with the oscilloscope then, uh, is sort of like comparing a Model T with a 
new Cadillac. It was black and white and uh, gave only distance. Uh, it had a baseline, a main pulse from the baseline, which was the antenna source, and then spikes in the grass, as we call it, uh, which indicated uh, targets. You measured this distance by the fact that the transmitter was pulsed. It was on for a period of time, and then it was off for a period of time during which you received any uh, responses from targets. And this was uh, shorted out at the receiver using a spark gap. Uh, the receiver would then uh, process that information, feed it to the oscilloscope, and you would get a blip on the baseline indicating a target. You would measure the distance with the oscilloscope control that was just beneath uh, and at your uh, right hand so that you could actually measure a distance based, of course, on the travel of the speed of uh, radio waves. There was no way of determining the elevation of a target. In order to determine the exact azimuth, uh, you rotated the antenna by means of a rheostat that was down beneath the, the oscilloscope between your legs, sweeping back and forth uh, with the antenna until you peaked the signal. At that point, you would cry mark to the plotter who would then look out the window or the side of the truck if it was open and read the azimuth off of the ring on the base of the antenna. He would then uh, plot this azimuth and accept from you the distance, uh, which you would call out in miles, and uh, that way you would get a location. But again, there was no way of uh, determining elevation, excepting by pre-plotted uh, antenna lobes, you could get a rough idea of altitude. It required some uh, experience to know that you had, for example, the right azimuth. Uh, again, as I said, you moved the antenna back and forth, swept an arc in order to maximize the signal. And uh, keeping con uh, all of this in, uh, in hand required a little experience, but it wasn't anything anybody couldn't learn. The radar equipment, uh, while primitive, was very good equipment. And um, we actually uh, outperformed the specs with it. Uh, for example, uh, we could uh, home in on um, Haleakala on another island, which was supposedly beyond the range of the equipment. 150 miles uh, easily uh, detectable, which is what we did in this case. Uh, of course, some, depends somewhat on altitude, but the equipment worked very well. It, uh, we had maintenance problems, of course. It was relatively new, and we were new, too. Um, in fact, on the island at that time, we only had one spare rectifier tube for all of the units. These were all vacuum tubes in those days. Uh, and uh, rectifier tubes, you know, are, are not noted for long life. So we had some restrictions on our operating just merely to conserve uh, equipment. But... Uh, I would have to say that the equipment performed satisfactorily. We felt that uh, we were on the leading edge of technology. Well, when we were set up for exercises uh, for actual operation, uh, we were connected to an information center at Fort Shafter by landline. 
in the van, uh, we, of course, had a telephone. And uh, over the telephone, uh, we would report to an operator at the information uh, center the positions of any targets that we had. This information was displayed on a large map on a board that uh, lay uh, horizontally uh, in the room, uh, depicting the island and uh, marked off in a grid uh, the surrounding uh, water. The operators of this board would place little targets, uh, little objects on the map and shove them around with uh, sticks to the proper position so that in a balcony that surrounded this table, observers could uh, get a picture of the uh, air activity and the ship activity in the area. We had uh, various operating schedules, but uh, around the time uh, that we're uh, talking about, we were operating uh, schedule uh, all day through the week. But on Sunday, we had a schedule from 4 a.m. to 7 a.m., uh, which time we were closed down. We generally operated in the morning, uh, primarily because of the uh, fact that the Air Corps in those days had uh, morning flights, dawn patrols out, and we would, this would give us something to uh, practice with. You've got to remember that uh, the level of air activity was nowhere near as extensive as it is, is today. In fact, the air activity was most exclusively military around Oahu at that time. Uh, so we had to count on the military flights, uh, training flights, to give us our practice. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Well, if I remember correctly, uh, three or four sightings would probably be about as many as we'd get in normally uh, in a morning's exercise. 
I think if you see the plots <clears throat> of the um, the uh, copies of the actual plot sheet, you'll see that there were uh, three or four other uh, flights recorded on that uh, document, uh, as well as the main flight, of course. That was uh, typical. We had no knowledge, of course, of any uh, possible attack. Uh, we certainly weren't looking for anything like that. The events uh, in which I participated uh, in the uh, uh, attack on Pearl Harbor on uh, December 7th, 1941, started the night before when George and I went up to the radar site located on Apana Ridge uh, on the north tip of Oahu. We spent the night up there because we were going to open up the station for operational exercises between 4 a.m. and 7 a.m. in the morning. And it was easier to stay up overnight than it was to be taken up early in the morning. Uh, we arose in time to be in operation by 4 o'clock. And we continued to operate uh, from 4 until 7. Uh, I don't recall. We only had a couple of sightings, I believe, if I remember correctly. Uh, now, George Elliott was a new man in our company. He'd only been with us a couple of weeks, and he needed training on the equipment. So we decided to keep the equipment operating uh, past the 7 o'clock time period uh, to give him some practice uh, while we were waiting for the truck to come and take us back to our base camp. Shortly after 7, while we were still operating, George had just sat down at the scope, I believe, if I remember right. Um, we got this indication of uh, what seemed to be a very large flight. In fact, it was the largest display I'd ever seen on uh, the scope. Uh, I thought at first there was something wrong with the equipment, so we ran through a series of checks and decided that uh, the equipment was functioning properly. Uh, we then decided to track it. I kept tracking it, and George was plotting it on the board, and we followed it for a while and uh, decided that oh, maybe we better tell somebody about it. So George called on the landline and got uh, Joe McDonald, the operator, switchboard in um, Shafter, Fort Shafter, uh, which is just outside Honolulu where our information center was located. Uh, Joe told him that uh, everyone had left, but that he would look around and see if he could find anybody. And he left the switchboard and looked around the information center and finally located a, uh, an Air Force officer, young Air Force officer, uh, Kermit Tyler. Uh, he relayed the information to him and uh, was told that, uh, well, was okay, uh, he, forget it. So Joe came back and relayed the information to George, and we continued to plot it. And uh, we were, again, we were impressed by the size of this thing. You know, it was, as I said, uh, obviously the largest thing I'd ever seen on the equipment. So I called back again, and uh, this time I spoke to, uh, directly to the officer I told him what we had, and uh, again, he said, well, 
you know. Don't worry about it. Uh, I forget what he said exactly, but that was the intent of the message. Now, I have since been under the impression that he felt that it may have been a flight of B-17s that were coming in from the West Coast that were due that morning. It was a custom to uh, have early morning broadcasts uh, when planes were coming in from the West Coast to give them something to beam in on. He had heard the radio. He assumed that that's what it was. But this was coming directly out of the north, which seemed to be a strange way to come from the western coast of the United States. Actually, in those days, P-17 had to be stripped down and extra fuel tanks put on board to make that flight. If he'd have been that far off coast, (laughs) maybe he would never have made it. But we followed them then until uh, they disappeared in the reflective grass of our equipment. And by that, I mean, we get a certain amount of interference from objects behind the uh, radar antenna that project out in front of the antenna. And in our case, it was about 20 miles. So we couldn't follow them much closer than that to the island. Of course, it was about at that point that they divided and went to their different targets. When we first reported it, uh, we actually reported it twice. Uh, we reported it, when we first reported it, uh, the response was uh, negative, uh, not to be concerned about it. Uh, but we felt so strongly that uh, it was something that somebody ought to know something about because of its size. Uh, when we reported the second time, yes, I tried to convince him that, uh, hey, we have something outstanding here. Uh, somebody ought to know about it. Uh, but again, we were uh, put off. Wasn't much more we could do, of course, but there was nobody else in the information center but that uh, Air Corps officer. There was no precedent for this sort of thing, of course. You've got to remember that this was the first, I think uh, it's a fair statement to say, that this was the first operation of American radar in a, in a battle. And uh, I believe that uh, there were many people uh, in higher command at this time who had some reservations about the value of this equipment. Uh, They thought it was a pretty nice toy, but I'm not sure they believed it it was anything much more than that. I think this convinced them it was, but after the fact. We did what we could. We reported it. We reported it twice. We stressed the fact that it was uh, unusual but there wasn't much else we could do. After that, the truck appeared, and we shut the unit down and started back to our base camp. Uh, We were about halfway there, I guess, or around there somewhere, when the rest of our outfit in uh, another vehicle passed us uh, going uh, toward the radar station as fast as they could go, everybody waving their arms at us and yelling, but we couldn't understand what they were saying. As we drove on down the road, we saw black smoke appearing from uh, over the uh, area where the harbor was located. And of course, we still didn't know what was going on. We got to the uh, base camp And we were told that we were under attack. Of course, we both immediately knew what we had seen and what we had tracked. Uh, We were too far away to hear 
explosions. We could see the smoke rising in huge billows uh, over the harbor. We could not see the harbor, of course, because the Waianae Range is between where we were and the uh, harbor itself. Uh, we could see airplanes flying around, but uh, other than that, no, we were not in, in the attack. We had no idea that it was an enemy attack, none. Uh, we uh, were speculating uh, what it could be, but we really had no idea. I don't even know if we even mentioned that it uh, could have been an enemy attack. You got to put yourself in the time frame to understand. Uh, nobody on the island was expecting an attack that I know of. When we heard what had happened, I immediately knew what we had seen. There was no question in my mind that, yes, that was indeed uh, the attack coming in that we had witnessed on the uh, oscilloscope. So I guess you can say we were the first Americans to know. <laughs> well, of course, it's the first emotion is shock. <laughs> and then after that, you wonder what comes next. Uh, I never could understand why they weren't equipped with uh, troop transports to land on the island, because I really think that uh, an organized uh, troop effort at that time would have taken the island. If they'd have taken our first report, they'd have almost an hour, uh, three-quarters of an hour, certainly anyway, notice. Uh, what they could have done with that is uh, anybody's guess. Uh, certainly they, could, they certainly couldn't have got the battleships out of the harbor. But maybe they could have uh, manned the uh, anti-aircraft artillery. Uh, maybe they could have moved the planes around so they weren't all lined up like sitting ducks. Uh, maybe they could have got a few more planes in the air. Of course, they would have been greatly outnumbered in any case. Maybe they could have saved a few lives. I, I have no way of knowing that. The Hawaiian Islands uh, before the war were... Uh, uh, it's, it's hard to relay to you the uh, general attitude, the general conditions of an army post before World War II. You have to remember that uh, at that time, I believe there was only about 185,000 officers and men in the entire United States Army, you know. And uh, this was a uh, well-established old line post. Uh, we were a relatively new company, but uh, uh, it was a rather relaxed lifestyle for the most part. And Sunday, of course, was uh, a day of rest, followed Saturday night, which was uh, <laughs> typical uh, GI uh, night on the town, uh, if he had any money. And uh, Sunday uh, was peaceful, just like uh, any other Sunday in any other part of the United States. So again, uh, it's difficult to convey an image of the pre-war military establishment. It was a lot of spit and polish and uh, all of that sort of thing, but uh, the United States hadn't been in a war since when? Uh, World War I, and uh, it was a very relaxed atmosphere, I would say. I know the tensions were building up uh, between uh, Japan and the United States. We know also that there was a war going on in Europe, 
the war in Europe from the Hawaiian Islands was a half a world away. And uh, while we read the newspapers, uh, it was a little unreal, I would say, to the people there. As to the upward level negotiations going on between Japan and the uh, United States, of course, we had no knowledge of that. Um, and then you've got to give the um, Japanese credit for a very bold endeavor. After all, uh, Hawaiian Islands are a long way from Japan. And uh, to take a battle fleet uh, all that distance and never be seen by anyone is a pretty uh, outstanding achievement. They uh, maybe uh, would have been less surprised in the Philippines, which is a lot closer to, the Hawaiian, to uh, Japan than the Hawaiian Islands. I think you need to recognize that we're now talking about a whole new kind of warfare. What started there was the key to the whole of World War II, but was pretty much unknown in warfare, certainly unknown to the United States in warfare up to that time, and that is massive air attack. Massive air attack may have been going on in Europe, but uh, we had no experience with it. We had coastal batteries of artillery. They had large gun emplacements for artillery. We had, I don't think there were more than uh, 100 or 150 airplanes uh, on the islands at that time. Most of them were trainers. And I know it wasn't too long before this that the first uh, P-40s appeared on the uh, island. Uh, I always considered it uh, a footnote in history. Uh, another one of those what-if uh, questions. Uh, history books are full of those, you know, for one of a nail, you know, as it goes. I felt that uh, pure coincidence. Maybe lives could have been saved, uh, probably lives could have been saved uh, had it been heated, but I've always been fond of history, and I realize that hindsight is always twenty-twenty, and it's difficult after you know something, to go back and evaluate a situation without that knowledge. You can't unlearn something. And it's never really haunted me. How much it's changed my life, I have no idea, because in many subtle ways, I suppose it could have or did. For one thing, it brought me back to the States. It gave me an opportunity to become an officer. How that changed my life, uh, who can say? Lieutenant Tyler was a young officer at that time, a second lieutenant, I believe. I think of very limited experience. Uh, it certainly didn't hurt his career, I guess, because he went on to become a colonel. I, at least I believe that's the case. I've never met him. I don't know if he was ever reprimanded or not. Couldn't have been too severe because he went on to a career in the service. Uh, becoming a colonel eventually, I believe. Uh, on a personal level, I have no uh, animosity. Uh, he didn't know any more about it than I did, apparently. Uh, second lieutenants are not privy to uh, upper echelon <laughs> information any more than privates are. <laughs> I know I've been a second lieutenant. <laughs> well, I have no firsthand knowledge of what the brass thought about radar. Uh, to uh, 
guess second guess their uh, reliance on this equipment uh, is something I wouldn't be able to do. I do feel that uh, there were many in the uh, service who didn't believe that the uh, equipment was much more than an elaborate toy. It had never been used uh, until now in an actual uh, engagement uh, till this episode. The um, equipment was so new that I, I suspect that uh, its knowledge of it and its uh, capabilities were not really widespread. In those days, the Signal Corps was a separate organization from the rest of the Army, if you will, under a chief signal officer in Washington. All of this was centered in that uh, area, and uh, it's uh, questionable how much uh, firsthand knowledge a lot of the, certainly a lot of the field commanders even had of this equipment. There was equipment installed in Panama of this same type that we had, but, well, there was none outside of the equipment we had in the Pacific. And again, we had only had it since August of that year. So uh, how much reliance uh, a man responsible for defense could put in equipment that he had no knowledge of, uh, you have to draw that conclusion yourself. Have I ever pondered uh, what else we could have done to uh, have uh, more emphasis placed on what we had seen? Not really, because there, we were 20 miles as a crow flies from Pearl Harbor. Our only connection with the outside world was a landline uh, that ran directly to a telephone operator in the information center. And we had already used that avenue twice. There really wasn't anything else we could have done. Uh, I don't think smoke signals would have helped. When we arrived back at our base with the truck and returning us from the uh, radar unit, most of the contingent had already, we had already passed them going back to the equipment uh, on our way back. Uh, we were, of course, then made aware of what was going on. We knew instantly that this was what had happened, uh, but uh, we discussed it and we told the people, the few that were left there, what we were talking about. They, uh, I'm not sure, fully understand what we were talking about at the time. But eventually, uh, Lieutenant Caceres, who was uh, in command of that detachment at the time, came to us and uh, asked us. Uh, we relayed all this information to him. And uh, <clears throat> then didn't hear anything more about it for uh, quite some little while until a... Uh, Colonel Murphy, I believe his name was, came uh, with a series of questions and interrogated us. And uh, then we didn't hear anything more for a while. And meanwhile, we had moved from the camp on the beach to a group of uh, workers' shacks located nearer to the... Uh, radar unit, uh, what was was an abandoned uh, pineapple plantation workers camp. And uh, we were there when I uh, first heard over the radio that uh, I was going back to the States. Well, after I came back to the States, uh, I uh, was sent to officer's candidate school. In before that and after, while I was still in the States, on a few occasions, I spoke to gatherings of people uh, 
to uh, help with the morale, if you will, to uh, encourage the population, whatever, <laughs> whatever I, whatever I could contribute. Of course, I went back overseas after I received my commission. I think uh, the uh, significance of the entire episode was that, uh, again, this was the first demonstrated ability of the equipment in an actual combat situation. And I think that it may have helped considerably to make a lot of people realize the tremendous potential of the instrument that we were using and how useful it could really be in warfare. Of course, we all know today that it's useful in a lot more than warfare. No plane could fly without it. Those days, uh, if you look at this equipment uh, as primitive, you also have to look at the fact that from that standpoint, it was a tremendous leap forward from what existed prior to this. Radio beacons was about all they had before, and uh, this was a vast improvement on that. Of course, it was all dependent upon development of technology, which was in its infancy, and of course, without technology such as magnetrons, uh, which were capable of generating these, uh, this microwave energy, uh, none of this would have been possible. So the, there's a great deal of technology here that was uh, in the vanguard in electronics that was just appearing and was greatly accelerated by the rest of World War II. That was Joseph Lockhart. Next time on Warriors in Their Own Words, we'll hear from Captain Joseph K. Tossie Jr., who lost his leg defending the USS Nevada during the attack on Pearl Harbor. He earned a Navy Cross for his bravery. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. It was said that on the ship that traveled to the POW camp, the conditions were so horrible and the hold was so crowded that men would simply die standing up. Letters from My Father is a new docu-series podcast starring Jack Quaid from Oppenheimer and the Boys. It's the story of one woman who retraces her World War II veteran father's steps after he was captured by the Japanese and kept in one of the most notorious POW camps and had to find a way to survive. You can find Letters from My Father from Voyage Media anywhere you listen to podcasts.